Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. We're almost two years into a global pandemic, and many families have struggled to find a new normal. Some people seem to have found one that exceeds life pre-pandemic, but many face ongoing difficulties. Parents are in a unique position because they are not only facing this pandemic from a personal perspective, but also as those trying to navigate their children's social and emotional well-being. Now, how people are faring is a topic of great interest for researchers. And joining me today to talk about how these changes are affecting parents is the head of the Lancet's COVID Mental Health and Wellbeing Task Force, Dr. Lara Aknin. As a researcher who primarily studies what makes us happy, she's in a unique position to help us better understand what's going on and how we all can feel better. I am so pleased to have here with me today Dr. Lara Aknin. She is a distinguished professor of social psychology at Simon Fraser University and former fellow at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Her research interests lie at the intersection of social psychology, positive psychology, economics, and judgment and decision-making. Research questions often include the study of what makes people happy, the emotional consequences of kind or generous behavior, and the well-being outcomes of specific spending choices. She is also the chair of the Lancet's Mental Health and Wellbeing Task Force for COVID-19, the topic of which we're going to be focusing on today. Thank you for being here today, Lara. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Um, so we're going to talk, because you've been doing some really cool work on the COVID, like, well-being. For, I mean, if we can even call it, I tend to think no one has any good well-being anymore, but I think you might counter that based on what you're going to tell me. But um, before we get to that research in particular, you normally do positive psychology, generosity, happiness. How did you get into studying that? Like, what led you to be like, that's what I want to focus on? You know, it was one of those experiences where the personal led the research. So um, one of my side gigs, if you will, it's not it's not a paying gig. But one of the things I do in addition to my regular research and teaching is um, I recently joined as a, an associate editor for the World Happiness Report. And that has led me to work with a bunch of wonderful economists and computer scientists and, and the contributors each year. Um, and one of the folks, uh, one of the editors of the World Happiness Report is um, Jeff Sachs at Columbia University, who is the um, head head of the Lancet's um, COVID-19 task force. And so I guess it was last summer or maybe early spring. No, it must have been summer 2020. I received an email from him inviting me to this early morning call about um, the Lancet Task Force. And I said, sure, I'll attend. And we get on the call and I see my name listed as the potential mental health chair. And I, I wrote him back and I said, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. And, and he was like, listen, I think it's going to be great. Anyway, long story short, we had some conversations and, and I agreed to do it. And so um, last year's World Happiness Report was very much about how COVID had changed life satisfaction and mental health and well-being. Um, and so, you know, he's like, you're already doing all this reading on the topic anyway, maybe, maybe this makes sense. And so um, it's been, it's, 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 it, it's been an amazing experience because I've been able to work with so many um, great thinkers in the field and try to pull together this group, um, a really multidisciplinary group of folks trying to understand how mental health has responded and changed over the past now 20 months or so. Prior to this, like looking at the World Happiness Index stuff, like you started yeah. this research on happiness back in graduate school. And was that because I know that was Liz Dunn's work. Yeah. And so did she get you into it or were you already eager to go on happiness back then? I think it was a long and winding road. I, I, I look back and, you know, people always have these amazing these amazing stories of, of like ground zero where their research questions came from. And I've been thinking about that more recently because I feel like I get this question more often. And, and, you know, in retrospect, I feel like I was the kind of kid who used to stay up late at night and daydream about the possibilities of like kind things I could do. Like I remember one year, I think um, I must've been like 12 and I have a younger brother. And I remember thinking like this, it's my parents' anniversary in a month or two you know, maybe if I babysit and I pull together like my $15 and like then babysit my brother, my parents could go out and have like a night on the town. Little did I know that $15 would probably pay for an appetizer. Um, but I remember like 
for months and, and nights. Like I would stay up and I would make notes about how I was going to execute this amazing thing. And so I think I've always been interested in in generosity. That that's always been something that's really captivating uh, to me. And 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 through undergrad, I kind of I don't think I had any master plan that I would end up in psych. It was it was my favorite class in first year, and then social psych was my favorite class in second year. And so I started volunteering in labs, I actually started in a developmental lab because I took a class with Jeff Hall, who was an outstanding teacher. And I was like, oh, this would be great. And I volunteered in his lab and as much, I enjoyed working with him and everybody in the lab. I just remember being really surprised by how difficult it was to recruit participants. I know you know this. You'd spend months and months calling families to get people to come in. And, you know, maybe after like 18 calls, a family shows up and then a kid has a rough afternoon or skipped a nap or needs a diaper change. And then the whole opportunity evaporates. And I was like, this isn't my pace. I need something that's a little bit faster. And so um, I was like, okay, developmental. Um, although they're super cute and these are really big, important questions, this just isn't for me. And so I, I started volunteering in social labs, which I loved. And then I took a, um, a memory and emotion class with Eric Ike, and he was, he himself was just so, he was such an eloquent speaker and the content to me was so fascinating. And I started to think that emotion was really what colored our human experience. Like we were just going through the motions if we didn't experience emotions. And so I started volunteering in his lab and I realized as much as I love the emotion stuff, it was very hard for me to think through and spend a lot of time on the negative emotions. And, and it was around that time, it was really serendipitous that Liz showed up. She was hired at UBC and here she was, you know, an expert in understanding how people misperceive what makes them happy with a real keen eye towards turning her attention to what actually does make people happy. And so it worked out nicely that she was looking for a lab manager. I applied interpersonally. We really hit it off. And um, and then when I applied for graduate school, she was accepting. And I, you know, I remember thinking I, I was going to go to, I was committed to going to a clinical program because I thought that was the most straight trajectory to helping people. And that's what I wanted. Um, that was how my interest in generosity had morphed over the years. And uh, Liz was like, you know, Clinical is one way to do it, but you know you can help people through research. You can help a lot of people through research. And and every time I went to go hit the accept clinical button, I kept feeling this knot in my stomach. And I was like, maybe I have to pay attention to this. And so I imagined for like a, an afternoon or a weekend what it would be like working with Liz, and it just felt right. And so I accepted. And and you know we put our minds together. She was really interested in in how money could make people happy, and I was very interested in generosity. And so that it was then born this whole, what ended up being my master's thesis, my dissertation work, and still the focus of my research, which is if and how kind and generous acts can make people happy. I should just clarify for people, because I think we're throwing names around without <laughs> necessarily an understanding. A yes. little background here. Lara <laughs> and I both did our PhDs together at UBC. So we're talking about all the same people. And those of you that know me know, I did start in clinical and then skadoodled, um, but did it in developmental. So the fact that Lara started developmental, we're talking about shared experiences here, just so that that I can imagine yeah. people being like, what is going on? Who are these people? And am I supposed to know them? What's happening? Um, but that's really interesting, because I love that it was the blend of both. I was never clear at the time whose research idea it was between the two of you. Mm -hmm. But it was fascinating even then that you got into it. So it's, um, it's awesome. But turning to the topic at hand, because, and the thing is, though, is that I think it's actually also really relevant now. I just have to go back because mm -hmm. it's so interesting to me that what I love about your work and what I hope we can talk about more is that as you look at COVID and people's experiences, there are people that are, are clearly struggling, as, as I know, but then there are these people that seem to not be and even potentially be thriving in this shifted kind of world. And I've always wondered, is it, you know, as we'll talk about here, but is it that ability to form these kind of connections with people, this, this kind of generosity towards others, it's opened up people's hearts there. So I don't know, we'll have to talk about it, but this is, you know, it is a fascinating concept here. So I think, as, as I said, I think generally, most people think that people's well-being has declined over time in terms of COVID. We've talked, you know, you hear the narrative, you talk to people, you know, 2020 was a dumpster fire kind of idea. It's, you know, we need it to change. But you recently published work that kind of counters this narrative. 
Can you tell us kind of what you've seen in the research? What really is going on generally with people's happiness? Sure. So, yes. So the report that you're referring to is uh, kind of our first mental health task force report, which is in press right now at Perspectives on Psychological Science. And what we really tried to do was pull together um, the best evidence we could find to get an understanding of how people's mental health had changed through the onset of COVID. Um, and it was, you know, it was no small undertaking. We probably reviewed hundreds, if not over a thousand studies to try to get a sense of this. Um, and we were really choosy about which studies we focused on because there was so much work coming out that it was, we were just inundated. And we, you know, we expected that we were just going to be cataloging disaster after disaster. And really, I think, you know, our first couple of meetings, we went in with that uh, approach. And and everybody kept nominating what they thought. We, we had these large Dropbox folders where everybody would just pop in articles um, to try to, to just at least first call the literature and pull together what we thought would be informative work. Um, and maybe before I tell you what the, the, at least the summary points are, I should mention some important caveats. First is that um, we really reviewed the evidence from I'd say the first year or so of the pandemic, maybe the first 14 months. And so while I have still kept an eye on what has happened afterward, I am not nearly as immersed in the literature as I was when I finished writing that paper. And I think the ebbs and flows of this pandemic are a really dynamic and interesting phenomenon. And so, you know, we're, we're not out of this yet. And I think the the, the up and down is, is a huge challenge to resilience that we can circle back to later. Um, but I think understanding at least the time scope is important and also the, the geographical scope. So although we really did make an effort to look as, as thoroughly as we could around the world to try to understand and index what was going on, there were there was an abundance of information coming from certain places in the you know in the Western world, um, but other places that were just struggling to minimize deaths, never mind assess well-being as they went along. Um, in fact, one thing that became readily ap apparent to me was that some nations were doing an exceptional job with longitudinal data sources, like the UK was head and shoulders above so many other nations with longitudinal panels of fifty thousand people who regularly report their well-being, and we don't. That's really interesting because I think um, I do want to circle back, actually, and I'm going to get you to, to first mm -hmm. answer what we've generally found. But I am really glad you brought up that timing question because that was one I had and I think is going to be really important because, you know, the timing is you even read this article. So if yeah. we get to it, what you're going to give us is kind of a summary up to really it sounds like end of 2020 early 2021 early 2021 so the the first the first draft was submitted around christmas time which is really kind of funny and then uh it was a long review and i remember kind of pushing like normally i don't i'm, I'm not i try not to be obnoxious that way and say like hey when are we going to hear back um but it was taking a little bit longer and i was saying like you know it's we, we think the most use from this report is if it's going to be published quickly. So please, you know, let us know if there's anything we can do. And and we got a lot of feedback, which was really helpful. Um, and then one of the comments from the from our editor was like, and of course, you'll be able to update this with the newest findings, too. And I was like, well, that could take months. So we incorporated as much as we could. But the, the heaviest, most thorough review was up through the end of 2020. And then we did another swath for the first few months. But the, the lion's share of the data included in there was up until the end of 2020. So what is it? What did you find yes. in terms so, of, of this? Yes. So the major findings were that um, early on, not surprisingly, there was a huge hit on well-being. So in the spring of 2020, in most places, um, in almost everywhere we assessed, there were major increases in psychological distress. So we're talking depression, anxiety, generalized distress, negative emotions were increasing. And in some places it was two, three, even fourfold compared to assessments conducted with nationally representative samples months or years earlier, which was really, really striking. Um, however, what we then began to see and what emerged in, in numerous studies and in meta-analyses um, was also some notable signs of resilience. So I wouldn't say that most people were thriving by any means, but in, in numerous samples, and it wasn't just an odd one here and there, you know, one meta-analysis of 65 papers found that by the summer, the late summer of 2020, many indices had returned to near or pre-pandemic levels. Not everywhere, not on everything, but which is kind of surprising when you think about the mountain or the avalanche 
of, of wreckage that we saw early on. Um, and so, yeah, some measures remain relatively robust throughout. So life evaluations, for instance, in some pretty large, amazing samples like the Eurobarometer, which is assess, assessing 34 countries, Gallup World Poll, which we were able to analyze um, with some of our author team, we had data from 95 countries and life evaluations did not move, which was very surprising. And, and so, and, and loneliness, uh, which I think everybody thought, you know, early days in the pandemic, not only are we going to be dealing with this physical health wreckage, but there is soon going to be a second epidemic of loneliness as we're pushing people apart to, for, for, for their physical safety. Um, and don't get me wrong, there, there was an increase in loneliness in several of the samples studied and, and you know, it, it was much smaller than expected. So for instance, a two or 3% increase in loneliness in the United States is, you know, is millions of people now reporting that they're mo more lonely than they were before, but it's nowhere near the estimates that I think most people would have offered in early days of the pandemic. And so um, as we point out some aspects of notable resilience, I, I don't want to give the illusion that, you know, people are singing and dancing in the streets, but I think it's also not the case that people um, everybody was wallowing at home. Um, many people found some creative ways to manage or, or weren't, weren't um, as, as badly hit as maybe they or experts would have expected. This does bring me back to that question about times, because, you know, as you say, depending on when you ask people, it, COVID has been kind of a wave up and down and up and down of peaks, and then it seems to recede and then it comes back. And I was thinking about this when I thought about a lot of the data up to that kind of the bulk of it being the end of 2020 mm -hmm. and even that early 2021, there was an optimism at that point. Like, I think we felt that it was going to be over, right? We got the vaccines. We're going to mm -hmm. get this. We are. And, you know, we went into 2021 with this idea that it's going to be totally different. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are at the end of 2021 not very different. And in fact, in some cases, having seen the worst of it just this year come mm -hmm. about. I don't know if you've seen data from this, but also what would be your prediction as to how that would impact kind of our level of resilience is like, can we overcome one wave? And then, you know, when it hits again, you're like, is it worse for us in general to kind of have that hope and then lose it again? How does that play out in terms of overall well-being? Yeah, well, I mean, it's I, that's a great question, and I think it's complex, and I don't know if I have the perfect answer. Um, but I do think I, I think the ebb and flow of this pandemic has been, in some ways, very interesting, but also very difficult, right? So I think people have found found a lot of relief last summer, as it, in many places of the world, as the numbers started declining after those initial huge spikes. People in the Northern Hemisphere were able to spend more time outside. They were able to socialize and numbers went down. And so there was this optimism. And then the numbers climbed again through the fall um, and into the winter. Uh, and I think that was very hard on people. But then you're right. Then we started hearing about uh, vaccines that were working and there was this optimism that the end was near. And here we are again with other waves and, and a huge majority of the world remaining unvaccinated. And so we're not safe until everyone is safe. And I think that is the reality. And so I, I do think, you know, I think in many ways people have, have come up with some really effective techniques to manage and to stay connected while apart. People have found some very creative solutions to, to deal with the tough times. What I think has been really challenging for people, um, both theoretically, but you can feel this on the ground, is that as these waves come and go, the public health orders are changing and responses need to change accordingly. And so, for instance, one of my best friends is a, is a teacher. And so early on in the pandemic, she was figuring, like she was managing with how to teach online to a bunch of first grade students and, and then having to figure out how to you know, how to maintain some of classrooms. And then towards the end of the classroom, sorry, towards the end of the year, school was opening back up. And so she was able to have some students in, some students home. She was managing all these different realities. Through the summer, there was a bit of relief in terms of cases, but she wasn't teaching. And then the fall started, people were back in. There was all this anxiety about what is to come. Here I'm in BC, all of a sudden there are now new mask orders for younger kids that weren't there at the beginning of the year. Um, I mean, every, I think everybody's, the the specifics are different based on where you are, but I think what is what is consistent is the changing landscape of what people are having to manage. And that uncertainty makes it very hard to adapt, 
both in your behavior, but also in your psychology. I think people are really good at making sense out of things and emotionally dealing with what is thrown their way. Um, but we probably have an upward limit of that. Um, and so I think we underestimated how well we were able to handle the first few waves of, of the um, of the pandemic and all the demands that were gonna be placed on us. But I also think um, the, the, the constant realities that demand our change in, in terms of behavior is also what makes it really hard to, to, to roll with this over and over again. I think some people are feeling like um, they, they might not be able to do this forever. <laughs> um, so hopefully we, you know, hopefully we're, we'll, we'll reach uh, like a vaccination threshold on the sooner side and, and life can return to some sense of normalcy like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the uncertainty and dynamics of this has, has been one of the harder things for people. I'm glad you brought up the uncertainty because, you know, I talk to families a lot one-on-one and one of the things I'm always reminding them is that humans thrive on predictability. It doesn't have to be that Mm -hmm. you know exactly what's going to happen, but you can kind of predict what's coming next. And Mm -hmm. when we don't have it, we get stressed out. It's that whole devil you know is better than the angel you don't is we will Mm -hmm. still pick worse situations if we know what to expect because that's how important predictability is to us. So mm-hmm. that has had me wondering, it's true, that idea of, I, and I admit, I hadn't thought about it with respect to COVID, but those ups and downs of what can you do this week? Where can you go this week? What's happening now? Wait, you're mass, you're not mass, you're indoors, you're outdoors, you're at home, you're there. That's really difficult for families like and, and people to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask about one particular finding before I, I switch gears a bit, because I do want to talk about parents mm-hmm. in particular, just because, of course, who are we listening you know, to this as parents? But you had one finding that mm-hmm. people who perceived the greatest impact of COVID also reported the lower levels of loneliness and highest levels of social support. Did I get that right? Yeah, one study found that. Um, yeah, and I think what in some ways, that? I think it has something to do, and I think this is how the authors explain it too. So I don't know if it's my, <laughs> I would, I wouldn't take credit for this, but I think the explanation, and which is very interesting, and and many people have put forward this idea too, and I think it's really fascinating, is that, uh, and and this harkens back to something you said earlier already, Tracy, which is the solidarity of the shared experience. I think to the extent that people are feeling like this is a major earth shattering life event and we're, we're, you know, the world is dealing with this. This isn't my personal problem. Um, and so when people are, are recognizing the scope and the challenge of this, they're also well aware or they're, they're also more likely to feel that perhaps we're in this together. And, and it might be, and I don't think the researchers tested this question. I'm struggling to remember the specifics, but th- those individuals may have also sought out um, or, or, built in more supports. So I think to the extent that you might feel overwhelmed or or like this is a huge threat, um, people might seek out support from other people um, and not wanting to go at it alone. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, there were some kind of surprising findings in that regard. Um, but actually, I didn't mention this before, but a lot of people um, hypothesized that suicide rates were going to be through the roof. And, and in fact, um, they were not, at least some of the evidence up to the end of 2020, the summer of 2020, and in some cases in through October, showed no increase. And in fact, in some places, a decrease in suicide rates. And, and theorizing on suicide, to my understanding, is also quite consistent with this, in that when um, suicides tend to um, decrease would people realize that other people are also in maybe in a similar position. And so there might have something to do with this like brotherhood or solidarity kind of idea. Um, but I don't know if, if the granular or the specific was studied in that particular sample. Yeah, because it did. It reminded me of the work on war, how people can feel this sense of coming together in the midst of this huge tragedy, but then you're getting these bonds built and people are developing a sense of connection that, you know, we didn't have. And I always thought, you know, I remember at the beginning there was, I was talking to someone about the, the link to having, you know, lived through world war two and the experiences that people would have had. And it's like, but at least they could see each other together, which is what we, we don't have. So it was a lot of people had this theorizing that it would be very different because we wouldn't have that physical connection because we're being separated. But I think, as you've kind of pointed out, it seems like we are able to kind of be creative in our ways of getting together with people and building those bonds in spite of being Mm -hmm. physically distant. Yes, 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, we had, I mean, th this is just one example that pops to my mind, but I feel like m many people may have been creative with theirs. Um, but in early days of the pandemic, when we were really struggling, I have a very social then five-year-old and now six-year-old, and he had a really hard time being away from friends and family. Um, and we live in a little strata. So we have some neighbors, probably like seven kids who live in like the houses next door. And I remember in early days in the pandemic, he was so itching for contact and we didn't know what was safe and what wasn't safe. Um, I remember I went out and I bought a projector. And then what we did over the summer as restrictions eased and also we started getting some more insight in what was going on. But um, we would do these strata movie nights where we would go out and we would project a movie just on our back garage and all the kids living in the neighborhood. I mean, they'd be sitting six feet apart, but they were together also through some shared experience. It felt like, and, and, you know, he's, he's made it no surprise. And, and, and um, it was one of his favorite memories of summer. Like every time we did that, each kid would kind of bring their own snack and, but they were together and they were laughing through the same movie. And, and so in some ways we would have never done that. And now we've got a new tradition. We'll probably carry on for years to come, hopefully when COVID ends. Um, so people, people were creative and um, we could be together, but apart. Um, but you're right. I think COVID was, was a real test and remains a real test for, for many reasons. And part of it is that, you know, it, it, it precludes so many of our common ways to connect and be with each other during times of stress and its uncertainty and its scope. And it's just so far reaching. It permeates every aspect of our lives. It's not just family time. It's also work time. There's no vacations. There's, or no traveling vacations the way some people may have done before. And so th there's a lot to, a lot to roll with, but yeah, I, I do think, um, there have been new creative ways that people have found to deal with it too. I'm glad you brought up that story. And I love that idea of <laughs> doing the movie night like that. Cause it's true, shared experience, right? That's yeah. what makes us happy. We don't have to be touching someone. It's the shared experience of it as we go, but yeah. it is, it does bring me to this impact for parents because one of your papers, I know um, you did find that, you know, parents were one of those groups that, you know, Unlike the whole population, they did bear a greater risk to some of these negative well-being um, findings, as you would. Mm -hmm. um, and it was particularly parents with young children, I think you yeah. said, right? Those under five and, or five and under. Five yeah. and under? Under five, yeah. Five um, and so what specifically did you find? What were the greater risks for those particular parents during this period? So this finding came out in numerous papers. Um, probably the most, probably the most, one of the most convincing data sets or papers was from Pierce et al. Um, it was published in the Lancet, and and they use this huge data set with dozens, the tens of thousands of people um, from before the pandemic to early months of the pandemic. Um, and they were able to kind of calculate what people's normal trajectories for psychological distress would be, and look at how. Um, individuals of, of varying um, demographics deviated from, from expectations. And one of the most striking and consistent findings was firstly that women um, in particular, and especially young women um, and individuals with kids under the age of five at home, um, were, were, they were new markers of stress. So many individual differences or groups that ex that experienced uh, lower levels of well-being or mental health beforehand remain such, um, but they also were able to kind of tease apart these new risk factors um, for psychological distress. And young parents um, and young females were, were some of the categories that kind of showed the, the largest deviations from what was expected. Now, they weren't able to parse the data and figure out exactly why that is, um, but I think there are some other studies that kind of triangulate on this. One of it, uh, some studies suggested that it may have to do with a huge demand. Um, well, first of all, young women in particular were in, this doesn't have anything to do with parents per se, but it probably overlaps with parenting, is that a lot of women and a lot of young women work in situations of more precarious employment. And so talk about the lack of stability. Um, if you're not certain whether you're gonna have a job next week, that is a huge source of psychological distress. Um, but also as this cross, cross, with, cross cuts with parenting, um, there were huge changes in how people, kids were forced home. And in many cases, um, daycares and childcare centers were closed. And, you know, my kid, my oldest child is now six. Um, so I was dealing, I was very much in this demographic last year where I had two kids under the age of five at home. Um, and it was constant supervision. And, you know, you, you can't just 
ask your child to go read and keep themselves entertained for a few hours while you are also doing your work. Um, it, it involved this very costly trade-off where my partner and I would wake up in the morning and figure out who was doing the morning childcare routine, who would get to work over their laptop hunched in bed, trying to find a quiet space. And then we'd flip after lunch and then we'd get our kids to bed and then we would go return to four hours of work into the middle of the night so that we could get a full day's work in and then repeat for months on end, not knowing if and when this was gonna end. And so it was a really stressful experience. And so the data suggested it was this group in particular that was at large risk, especially in early days. I think that a school, that's one of the, our key recommendations um, emerging at the end of this paper was to prioritize keeping um, childcare and school open to the extent that it's safe. It's not only, I mean, the parents' mental health, I think, makes a, a strong enough case, never mind the emergent data on how it is for, for children as well. Um, and yeah, another key finding that kind of emerged from a really interesting paper is just the amount of ch household chores um, that parents, and in particular women, were picking up to kind of make ends meet during the pandemic um, was a huge, a huge detraction on well-being. Um, there was just a huge influx in childcare, a huge influx in household chores, and not necessarily more time to do it. Um, and so it just it took a real toll um, on particular uh, parents, on young uh, and younger individuals, and on women. It's interesting because the chores are something that you know I I homeschool the kids so they're home and people, you know, our house is not clean. Um, it's not something that comes across and it's just like, even if I were to clean it every morning by 11 AM, it's done. Like mm -hmm. by 11, by nine, it's done. It doesn't matter. Like it, there is, it really is. There's so much more as mm -hmm. opposed to when you like get up, everyone leaves the house. No one's destroying the house from nine to five. And mm -hmm. then you come back. So that ongoing build is really, you either have to learn to live with it, but I think that could be very hard for people that are used to not having that going on as well. But yeah, and keeping young kids occupied is huge. And I would imagine, was there a link? I, I mean, I imagine there is, but you can confirm mm -hmm. a link with places where there were more restrictions in terms of going out and, and doing things because... I mean, I guess I would imagine if you have a young child and you can't go to the library, you can't go out to yeah, even the I, beach or something, that would be. That, that, that's, a, that's a very sensible hypothesis. And I'm trying to think if there was a paper that parsed the data in such a way. So they were able to parse the data by like ur, rural and urban areas. Um, but at that point in time, there was no clear, there, there was later an emergent index on the level of policy stringency. So on the extent to which places has, had closed and opened. And, and that's actually something that our, our task force has really been thinking about lately and how that is associated with mental health, um, but not necessarily how it intersects with parenting and, and opportunities for, for keeping a child occupied. But I, I don't know of any one paper that, that studied that question per se, but it, 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 it's sensible. I think that that could bear out in the data. You mentioned they did urban and rural areas. Can I ask what what did they find in terms of interactions with that? Uh, it, it, they were just main effects that 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 remain from before. And so individuals living in in urban areas, I believe, were were um, experiencing lower levels of psychological distress. But that was a that was kind of one of the findings that persisted from before the pandemic. It wasn't necessarily a growing divide, okay. a new risk factor per se. Because I was actually wondering the opposite, just because where I live, we now have an influx of people leaving the city to mm -hmm. come move to this more rural area, being like, I don't need to be in the city. I can have space. My kids, you know, even during a lockdown can be outdoors and move right. around and we have things to do. So I kind of wonder if it would go the other way. Mm -hmm. um, I did have, and maybe this speaks a little bit to kind of when these studies were done, but, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things you also found was that more time homeschooling predicted worse outcomes. So although it seems like parents of older children didn't inherently have that inherent risk, it seems like there's kind of an interaction there with how much homeschooling they had to do. Right. That. Is that fair? I think so. So those are within individual analyses that are kind of controlling for this person. So on days in which people had more homeschool time, they were reporting lower levels of well-being than on days when they had less homeschool time. Um, and so as you can imagine, th these individuals were 
didn't take as large of a hit in their early days of the pandemic as young young individuals versus older individuals or parents at home, parents with young kids at home versus parents with older kids at home. But even just among this group of parents who had older kids on days when they had more homeschooling, it was more stressful. There were, I, I mean, um, there was no deep dive into the mechanisms, uh, but the, I, I think the underlying logic is just, this is stressful for parents and for kids to have to manage this um, levels of attention. It's just, it's difficult. It's another opportunity. It, spending time with one's kids wasn't inherently problematic, but it was the, it was homeschooling, which I think um, in particular may have been a, an area of tension that just w was, ex was additionally harder. Um, especially for parents who, who probably weren't doing this before. Um, so now have to manage a parenting relationship and all of a sudden become their parent, their child's teacher, and they're figuring it out for the first time and they don't know what they're doing. Um, they're probably up late at night trying to read about how I cover this information with my kid tomorrow or struggle to get my kid to sit down to listen to this for 20 minutes and what is enough and what isn't enough. And, and so... Um, but yeah, homeschooling was one of the times we, we kind of categorized it under time spent is, is kind of a risk factor. That, you know, I'm glad you kind of brought up the relationship because when I read that, that was actually where I went was it, it wasn't the actual schooling. It's that if you're, you have this great relationship with your child, then suddenly you have to engage in something they don't want to do. And you're at loggerheads with each other mm -hmm. all the time. That negatively affects the quality of your relationship with your child. And that would be, you know, I feel like that building up over time is not positive for anyone in that regard. Like homeschooling is mm -hmm. hard and it mm -hmm. is not something that you want to be doing when it's causing a negative effect on your relationship in general. Um, you mentioned though, too, that one of the recommendations, which I do have, and I have other questions that I want to kind of get into, but I want to mm -hmm. jump to that one quickly. Um, Cause you did recommend providing access to safe child care and elementary schooling for young children. Mm -hmm. What does that look like to you? Um, and what is the feasibility of expecting that? Cause that is one of the, the concerns there. Cause I think, I mean, I can share stories that are horrifying in some places about the degree to which safety is not followed. Um, yeah. But, so, yeah. What is it? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't proclaim to be an expert on building safety and and um, any of those things. However, I should mention that one other arm of this Lancet um, COVID commission was safe schools and safe buildings. And so there, there was... Um, a lot of thought put into what this would look like. And a lot of it has to do with safe ventilations, um, which, you know, is, is, is seems to be something that, that could be invested in. Um, it's a little hard when you're caught flat footed um, and you need to make these decisions on the fly to care for, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids within your school district. Um, but it's not impossible and certainly might be something that we want to invest in in the future, knowing that this is probably not the last instance of, of, of uh, respiratory concerns. Um, that being said, you know, it, it, it could involve um, a lot more air circulation, a lot more outdoor time, um, masks in the classroom. What's interesting, I should point out, Tracy, is that like our understanding of COVID has changed a lot over the course of like our initial attempts to write this report. I mean, in early days, we were all worried about um, fomites and surfaces and scrubbing things down, thinking that this was, you know, that's how this was mainly transmissible. And now we know a lot more about this being airborne. Um, and I think that should shift how people respond. And so one actually interesting feature, I think, of this of this report and in the larger context about trust and mistrust of science is just um, trying to convince people that as we update our beliefs about how this virus and, and how to respond to it um, grows, changing our minds is not a bad thing. It's actually a sign of uh, a sign of appropriately responding to what we learn. Um, and so, you know, I, I leave what is safe schooling to the experts, but I do think that from what I understand and from what I've read from their task force reports, it involves a lot more circulation, more time outside, masks, distance, um, and maybe some thoughtful choices about like what is, what is done in person and what is done um, outside of those confines. But I think, you know, there's a lot to be, there's a, a lot on the line for parents' well-being. It seems like these are some of the groups that really took um, some of the largest hits in, in these transition points, um, primarily and very likely due to some school closures, but, but other reasons as well. Um, 
and and never mind, like I mentioned before, um, how this is impacting kids. Our review kind of focused on adults. We we didn't even have a close assessment on how kids were responding to closures. Um, and so I think that's one really important additional layer of complexity. Um, and even still, we were offering this recommendation. So, so I was curious about how. Like, I think that's great. I think it's good for people to know the ventilation, everything, what needs to go. But mm-hmm. in most places, it's not always possible. It's, mm-hmm. Or it certainly isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how that interacts with a parent's well-being. Because you're sending, you know, if our well-being, when our choices are, I send my child to a school that I know isn't safe mm-hmm. versus... What are the risks of being home, our relationship, the stress, my work, everything else? When we put parents in a position of there's no winning, right? This is what kind of effect does that generally have on well-being? And what do you expect it to have on parents' well-being as we go forward? Well, as we mentioned earlier, I think that uncertainty is is a huge strain on people's well-being. Um and as to is, you know, the, the, the pandemic itself, this fear of, of getting ill, this fear of your child getting ill, um, that is that is a really and, and any loved ones or elder, you know, elderly family members. That's that's a huge risk. Um, but also the strain that comes from managing this day to day life um, it, under uncertainty is also really hard. And so I think as we learn more about the pandemic, we'll hopefully be able to make some calculated decisions about, uh, you know, every family and every parent probably has their own threshold, uh, obviously. Um, you know, some some families went back last summer towards for the last months of term and, and were comfortable doing that, and, and other families were not. Um, now in BC, where I am, um, school is back on, it's face-to-face, kids from kindergarten and up are now wearing masks, but but that's the reality. And so I, I, I do think the uncertainty really wears on people. I think there are things that the government and, and whatnot could be doing to help alleviate that stress. I think transparent decision-making would, would, would go a long way. Um, and I think, you know, there have been times where that's been really clear and there have been times that it hasn't. And I think making the evidence, making the decision-making process a, a lot more transparent to parents can remove some of that uncertainty. I don't think there's any, you know, there's still so much being sorted out that uh, being understood that I don't know if we'll ever have perfect clarity into what's going on. But but the uncertainty is really tough. And I think wherever we can remove that, we're, we're doing a service for people. But I don't know if I, I mean, I don't have the ultimate answer on how, par- whether parents should keep their kids at home or, or not. Um, but I think, at least the public health orders seem to suggest right now that the 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 safety is not as that there isn't that it that it's safe enough to be there there's it's it's we're never we're not at a place where transmission is going to be zero um and people still need to weigh their own risks but by and large it seems that the province where i am is suggesting that it's safe enough to be back in person now do you think in terms of well-being so if we're just thinking about what creates better well-being in the midst of a pandemic for people mm-hmm. is the option like are more options better or worse and and let me just clarify this because mm-hmm. i know research and parenting more generally mm-hmm. is that when people live in a culture where there's one way we do things this is what we do everyone kind of does it it's mm-hmm. actually easier overall rather than being given here are 50 different things you can do to raise mm-hmm. your child. Now you have to make the choice as to what is going to be best. And you bear mm-hmm. that burden. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet sometimes we do want choice. So when we think about something like public health during a or parenting during a pandemic, mm-hmm. how much choice should we be offering? Is it, you know, cause I know there are some school districts that don't even offer the option of online learning. And mm-hmm. for some families that's devastating because they might have a immunocompromised family member. There's things that go on, you know, right. but in, just in terms from a well-being, not from a safety or whatever the choice, yeah. but do you think more choices would elicit greater well-being for families in this? Or do you think it just might be easier to say, this is what we're doing and this is what you do? Well, outside the context of the pandemic is where I'm most familiar with this. There, there is evidence showing that people think that people want choice, but it is not helpful for your well-being, um, or at least an abundant amount of choice can be problematic. It can be paralyzing, um, and so people second guess themselves and and they feel conflicted, and they're never not everybody's certain they made the right choice, um, and so ha- having too many options can sometimes be problematic, and 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 can backfire. And so I don't know of anybody who's tested that within 
within the context of the pandemic, I, I, it would have to be a very creative and crafty natural experiment. Um, but yeah, be, beyond the context and, and in for, for full disclosure, much lower stakes. Um, people, <laughs> it seems like having um, too much choice can, can be a burden for well-being, not necessarily a help. I guess I was just thinking like, even naturally, could you look at places where parents have the option of sending kids back versus online school versus districts where there is no choice um, Mm -hmm. to go through? I don't know if anyone's looked at that, but I guess that's also then tempered by if there is no choice, do you have lower rates of transmission anyway? So is that why there isn't the other option and all that? Yeah, I don't know if any people are doing that. I mean, I, I imagine you would need some pretty sophisticated modeling to track like vaccination rates now and infection rates and also, you know, policy changes over time. Um, and it's not just school closure versus um, the degree of openness, but like you said, the amount of choice um, within it. But but that, that does sound really interesting to track uh, what's going on. Just going back to something you said about the women, because you mentioned at the beginning those groups that were bad where we had young women, women, and then young parents, well, not young parents, but parents of young children yes. of any age there. With that, did you see kind of a combined interactive effect for females then as we think about mothers compared? Like, was it additive? Was it exponential? When you think about that risk to these various outcomes, if you are young female and have a child under five, was your well-being, you know, way significantly more at risk than a older mother of children under five or a parent, a father with a child under five versus mothers. How did that play out in terms of like those interactions? Yeah. Um, there were not many data sets that were able, that were large enough to parse all of this. Um, the, the one that is coming to mind and I don't want to misquote it, but it, it's that same Pierce paper, which is just an exceptionally informative data set. Um, and my recollection, although it would certainly be worth double checking because it's been a while since I reread it with that level of depth, I think it was additive, um, but I could be wrong. So I, I do think that many, um, I think many examinations were able to do the male-female split because there were large enough numbers in the data file to be able to consider that. Age generally was a huge new risk profile. A lot of the evidence shows that usually younger individuals report really high levels of well-being. It dips through your 40s, 50s, as you kind of feel the crunch of parenting, but also watching your older parents age and having to take care there. And then um, life satisfaction and well-being tends to improve in your older years. But the pandemic just squashed the early side of that U. And um, I think younger individuals just had a lot, uh, both because of their precarious employment situations, but also just optimism for the future squashed. Um, and so that was a big deal. And so I think definitely the younger side of things, also female, I think was was multiplicative. I do not remember so much about the parenting. So that that's the one I'm I'm a little bit more cautious about the interactive effects there. It's I, I thought about it simply because I remember articles talking about kind of the burden of the homeschooling, the chores, the everything falling to mothers more than fathers mm-hmm. on, you know, these kind of during the time. And I, I'm not sure if they were articles so much as more case studies looking at it all and seeing more survey type data mm-hmm. as opposed to really rigorous analyses. But it did strike me, you know, we talk about that gender divide that happens in parenting more generally. Mm-hmm. Does it get exacerbated, even mm-hmm. though both parents are home, in terms of who's taking on what and how does that go? Um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned optimism, though, because that was something that um, struck me when thinking about parenting mm-hmm. and thinking about not just optimism for your future, which young people have, but did they look at optimism in terms of your child's future? Like how... Mm. Because I mean, I start thinking about my kids' well-being throughout all of this in the long run. Right. As parents, does that lead to a negative impact for parents as well? That's a great question. So a lot of the surveys we looked at did not include that question. The the forward-looking questions were often include the 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 most representative one that I can think of was posed by Gallup. They included in what they call their thriving index, which is asking, how do you feel now? But also, uh, what is your expected level of life satisfaction in the, in the I think it's five years ahead of right, uh, of right now. And they combine, they often 
categorize people on this thriving index by individuals who are, I think, over seven points now and expect seven or eight and higher in the if in the future. Um, but those are all self-focused. They're not about your child's well-being. I, I know the Gallup poll contains a number of questions about your, your child, but I don't know um, to what extent. I don't know of many papers that analyze that as a function of uh, or as, as correlated with and associated with one in, in individual's well-being. But I, I, I think I, I my intuition lies with yours in that if, if you are concerned about your child's future, that that would be a huge hampering on, on your well-being or at least strongly associated negatively um, with your current well-being. That seems like um, not only does that project your thoughts into the way more distant future, but obviously you are so intertwined and cared, caring about your kids that um, that would be pretty hard to to square away. So are you telling me we don't actually have research in general on how parents perceive their kids in terms of their well-being? I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying I don't know. I don't know of any study in the context of COVID that I could that I could pull upon to answer your question. <laughs> but I mean, not even with COVID. Do we not know oh. how, you know, optimism for our children impacts our well-being outside COVID just in general? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of who does work in that regard. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised that there, if there's work out there, but I'm struggling to peg a name of who's doing this. I was thinking just because I remember um, he was at UBC. Kustav? Oh, oh Kasta Kushlev. Yeah. 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 Um, and he did work on parenting, like kind of our well-being kind of intertwined and found that parents were generally happier when they had a high degree of kind of belief and kind of, I guess, connection to the child and like involvement with the child. So I was wondering if that might play out into kind of our, our overall feelings of well-being. If we have mm -hmm. hope for our children's future, would it be moderated by the degree to which we feel we might have a role in that future? Mm -hmm. um, but that was the research that came to mind as kind of being, is there something there in terms of well-being or not? Yeah, yeah. Costa's findings do generally show that, um, yeah, the engagement with your children, um, active engagement with your kids, being present, contrary to what I think was the very common narrative early on, was that kids were bad for your well-being. <laughs> uh, and he, along with some others, um, Katie Nelson in particular, have done a lot of work trying to understand through multiple really interesting methodologies, finding that um, parents are, are no less happy and in some cases happier than non-parents. Um, and and the, emo the time you spent with kids can be, to the extent that you're engaged and, and invested, it can be um, very meaningful and, and lead to your well-being. And so I guess from there, it does follow that um, to the extent that you feel responsible for that or partially responsible for that, or at least an agent of it of sorts, um, that would be, um, that would follow. I mean, more broadly, the pro-social literature as well would also suggest that just if you feel that you are bringing about positive outcomes for others, your children or otherwise, um, that would be pretty, um, pretty deeply tied with your well-being and, and follow from it. Which actually kind of leads to, you know, one of the things that I think is most important here in all of this, because as you know, like as you've talked about, our well-being is probably going up and down along with all of the waves that go along with everything. We know you have great recommendations. I mean, I want to say, I know we only talked about one, but I love those series of recommendations that you have in the papers. So I hope people will check it out because it will be linked in the show notes there to see. But the fact, as I mentioned, that a lot of them are systemic supports that people need and that need to come into place that may not mm -hmm. be able to come in. And I hate putting the burden of our well-being on the individual when there's systemic failure. But when there's systemic failure, sometimes that's all we have. And mm. as someone who has studied the things that make us happy and the ways in which we can be happy and how it often mm -hmm. counters what we think makes us happy... Mm -hmm. um, what can you tell people? What are acts that people, families can do that might increase their happiness if they're feeling like their overall well-being is taking a bit of a hit because of everything going on? Certainly. So um, 
so the seventh so I'll pull upon data that that um, predates the pandemic and and that has also been collected from during the pandemic. Um, but uh, one key finding is that connecting with other people is a key source of happiness. In fact, um, over the past couple of years, there's been a really interesting new kind of offspring of this work showing that even interactions with strangers is really great for our well-being in a way that we don't anticipate. I think we all intuitively understand that like close relationships really matter for our well-being, but I don't think you'd think that um, speaking with someone like a barista that you normally see, like making time to say hello and just ask how they're doing would be consequential for our happiness, but it turns out it is. And so finding ways in which we can connect with other people um, is a great source. How long does that connection need to be? Is it like, like you mentioned the barista, but like, can it be like that two minutes while you're waiting for a coffee? Yeah, so some really cool research um, actually out of Liz Dunn, uh, Liz Dunn's lab with Jillian Sandstrom, her former PhD student and my former lab mate showed that just having brief interactions with the barista um, can do it. Some other really amazing work by Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder has found that this was pre-COVID, but I think uh, having brief interactions with people on the train or the bus um, in lines for things, this this can all matter too. Um, chatting with someone in a waiting room while you're waiting to see an appointment, while you're waiting for an appointment. Um, these, I think these conversations were like on average five minutes, like we're not talking a half an hour conversation. And so it seems pretty achievable. Um, beyond beyond just interacting with other people and, and reminding ourselves of the social world, um, engaging in kind and generous acts is one of my favorites. That's something I've studied for a decade now. And I'd say that the evidence kind of robustly shows that um, in many contexts, it, finding ways to help other people can be really great for our well-being. Most of the ways in which I've studied it involve financial forms of generosity, so like buying someone a coffee or making a donation. Um, but I think the literature also shows that engaging in, you know, helping a stranger or sometimes um, volunteer work, although that could be a much larger commitment that might be harder during the pandemic, uh, can also boost your well-being. Um, there's also evidence engaging in forms of gratitude can also um, be really great and helpful for for well-being. So um, it, pe keeping a gratitude journal is one thing that is often recommended. Just jotting down at the end of the day things that you're grateful for um, can be actually a really fun activity. I've started doing that with my older son at night. He tells me he's two roses and a thorn, and it's just really lovely to hear what he's grateful for. Um, but it also seems to settle him in ways that are, are, are great. Um, and aligns with the data too, shows that not only does expressing gratitude lead to more positive emotion, but actually leads to better sleep, um, or at least some of the early work did. Um, and finally, yeah. just some other COVID specific, oh, sorry, did I cut you no, off? Oh, sorry. It's, I just, I actually had one little follow-up question from before, yeah. that, but I can ask after, but no, okay. Um, with the monetary one, yeah, do people need to have that interaction that they're giving someone something? Does it like, you know, I kind of think about you donate to a charity. Do you get mm -hmm. that same sense of satisfaction when it's like, okay, here's 20 bucks versus I'm buying someone a coffee and here you go, I'm giving it to you. And there's almost, again, that personal connection to it. Does it matter? So the short answer is yes. Um, it, financial generosity and I think most acts of generosity are most rewarding when people give in ways that allow that provide an opportunity for people to connect with others and to feel like they've made a difference. And so oftentimes giving face-to-face -face are some of the most tractable ways in which we can do that. It provides an opportunity for connection because you're giving to another person. And oftentimes you can see their smile, their face light up, and, and it provides like a really great cue that you've made someone's day or at least um, their few minutes. I don't think that precludes the possibility that online donations and, and more distant forms of giving um, can also make a difference. Um, for instance, some charities do a really great job of of, of encouraging and facilitating social connection even online, um, and they do a really good job of talking about the ways in which your donation will really help someone. I think, um, for instance, donating um, uh, a vaccine to underprivileged places right now across the world you you may not never you may never meet that person, but you can be pretty certain that that you know might change their life in a in a very tangible way. Um, so, you know, it's not to say ignore those other ways, but, uh, yeah, to, to find ways to make those gifts as, as, um, as, as relationship building and as impactful as possible is probably a wise strategy. 
And I was just going to add that during the pandemic, um, some research suggests that being outside in nature, which is it has always been uh, a lot of research has suggested that that's good for our well-being, um, is all remains good for our well-being. So, for instance, gardening has been has been associated with greater well-being. So is exercise before the pandemic and during the pandemic. Um, and actually some, some activities or some data suggest what not to do, like to stay off, um, COVID related media, um, just being inundated with that news can be very detrimental for one's well-being. In fact, even, um, just even minor snippets, like multiple minutes of bad news, uh, about COVID can be pretty overwhelming and, and, and detract from people's mood. So staying away from that can, can be helpful too. That's awesome. I'm sorry. I'm just going to clarify the gardening one as someone who started gardening a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. It's all fine and good until the freaking bugs come along and eat all your plants and then leave you with nothing because it is not good for your well-being to watch oh. all your work go away. Or our neighbors had just going to living in the country. Mm-hmm. random cows got loose and ended up in their backyard and ate half their garden before they got caught and chased oh. back to their home. So there's always that little caveat that sometimes <laughs> gardening is not, you know, always there, but uh, just, uh, I say that out of anger as I stared at my zucchini plants that provided me with nothing after these <laughs> all over. Um, no, I love this. This is so helpful. Cause I think it is, you know, and, and I think what you kind of highlighted and what really comes around is it seems to come back to that connection mm-hmm. that, you know, connection with others. Cause I think even when we talk about something like a gratitude journal, Often our our gratitudes are to do with other people. It's not, you know, it's reminding us of good things with others. So I think that's really such a crucial piece. Um, And my last question, because I know we're at time here and you are such a busy person, but how do you foresee this experience changing things for families more generally in the long term? Well, one thing I've felt personally, and I, I, I think may happen is, um, some some more explicit conversations about priorities and time um, and and maybe how family responsibilities and burdens are 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 shared um, you know so I think I think a lot of people have faced a reckoning of trying to figure out like how do we make how do we make all of this work how do you know there's and some of it has been really creative and positive as we alluded to earlier you know the absence of of long distance travel has led people to be really creative in their own backyards and find new ways to connect with friends and family in ways they didn't before. Um, but also the influx of chores and, and, and other responsibilities has led people to figure out like, where do we want to prioritize our time and our effort? And, you know, maybe, um, it certainly offers an opportunity to pause and, and take stock on some of the decisions, um, that we, we may have made unintentionally in the past. And so, my, you know, I, my, my, I think this is an opportunity, whether, whether it will bear out as, as, as a major shifting point, it remains to be seen. Um, but I think it's really an opportunity for, for families, for, for parents, for kids to have some conversations about, you know, what did we like? What didn't we like? How can, you know, when we move out of this, um, you know, for instance, there's been a lot of conversation about to what extent are people going to be returning to the office if they have that kind of flexibility, um, do we want to return to more of a four-day work week instead of a five-day work week um, and make some more thoughtful decisions about how we use our time? Um, if if all the burdens came, the household care and, and household chore burdens came falling down on one person's shoulders, are people going to be a little bit more, you know, before it might have been easier to escape with everybody out of the house. And now um, if someone is constantly doing it in, in your field of vision, <laughs> and it's a little harder to ignore. Um, and so maybe being more aware of these things can, can maybe offer um, an opportunity for more equity or at least more thoughtful choices. And so I, I, I hope that is something that we learn from this. Um, and, and, you know, I'm certain there are researchers who are going to be tracking that. And so we, we will be able to find out. Um, but th- that, that is my hope. And I, I think a lot of people are making some careful choices. I also think just on like the research side of things that um, we, we invest a lot more in terms of measuring mental health and, and making some of these tractable changes like safer buildings um, so that we're not, we're in a better position next time. I love that. And I love your thoughts on the long term. One I'm going to add to it too has been, you know, just the idea of 
of overscheduling with kids, I think, mm-hmm. has been. I've seen one of the biggest shifts for families that said, oh, my kid's now thriving um, or doing better with mm-hmm. just more downtime. Having that downtime for kids, which may not be easy for parents, though, because mm-hmm. part of that scheduling is sometimes for work. So I think it does go back to this work-life balance and what can we expect for it. Mm-hmm. I cannot thank you enough again, Lara. Thank you so much for sharing this, for doing this work, too, for taking that on as chair, because you know, we need to know what the research is and, you know, and the fact that it is ever evolving as we learn more and things shift. And, you know, I know I expect you guys will have another report out at some point with. We will, but it'll be, you know, the, the, the good news is that lots of people are doing summaries. Um, and so I think our second, I think it'll actually end up being our third report will be of a, a different variety, but I, I suspect there will be no shortage in people um, trying to summarize and document and understand what has been going on because these have been extraordinary times. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this has been helpful in helping you navigate your own well-being and how you might get to feel a little bit better in the midst of all the insanity. Now, as you may have noticed, most of the research that gets discussed on this podcast has a bent towards mothering, even if we call it parenting. Now, starting next week, we embark on a mini-series of interviews focused on fathering and fatherhood before we shut down for a bit of an extended break. Now, kicking off our fathering series is a researcher that many of you will know, though not necessarily for his work on fathering. Dr. Lee Gettler of the University of Notre Dame joins me, and I cannot wait to share with you his incredible work and insights into fatherhood. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.